Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. Would you take your Bible please and turn to Acts chapter 10? Acts chapter 10 in your Bible. I want to read the first six verses of this chapter. And then I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, Why Reach the Unreached? If you were here in Sunday school, we talked about the unreached people groups and uh, how many of them there, there still are left. And the question has to come up in someone's mind, why is it so important to reach them? Why is it so important to get the gospel to these unreached people groups? And we're going to illustrate the reasons for that in Acts chapter 10 at the beginning part of this story of Cornelius, a Gentile who came to Christ. Before we read our text, let's stop for prayer, please. Bow with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious word and the gift that we have in having it in our own language. We can open this book anytime and read what you have to say. This is the word of God. May our hearts break for those who don't have it. May our hearts break for those who've never heard your name. And may our hearts be challenged this morning in a fresh way about the necessity of reaching the unreached peoples of our world. I pray for your help and your spirit's fullness for both preacher and listener today. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, the Bible says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. I would encourage you later today to read the rest of this story throughout the remainder of chapter 10 and into chapter 11 about what happened here. We'll refer to a little bit of that in the message this morning. But I want to start the message with the same uh, statement that I used in Sunday school. And this clicker is not working for me, gentlemen, back there uh, for some reason. Is that thing still laying up there? There we go. God is on a mission to reveal His glory and extend His grace every kindred, tribe, and tongue. How many of you believe that's true? Would you say amen this morning? If that's true, then we ask ourselves, why is that mission so important? There are, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, 7,407 unreached people groups. That's almost 4 billion people that have still no access to the gospel message. The story we just began to read here in Acts chapter 10 is a wonderful illustration of how missions works. I want to show you this statement right here. 
missions is the plan. I'm going to read it and we'll come back to it at the end and I think it'll make more sense at the end of the message than maybe at the beginning. I hope that's true. Missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill His desire to get the gospel to those who've responded to some form of witness but are waiting to hear the rest of the story. Missions is God's plan to get the gospel to people who are seeking for God. That's the, that's the short version. I'll explain that as we go through the message this morning, but here's what I want you to see in this story. First of all, I want you to see, and this is, this, this is still introduction, but Cornelius is representative of an unreached people group. He was a Gentile, specifically an Italian of Italian ethnicity. This Gentile man had grown tired of the superstitious idolatry that he had been raised in all of his life, this Roman paganism, worshiping multiple gods, and something was happening in his heart. He has responded to some form of witness, but he needs to hear more. Cornelius represents an unreached people group. Peter represents the, the, the church with the gospel. Peter represents a laborer with the message of Jesus Christ, who has been given the commission to reach people like Cornelius. I believe the story has a twofold purpose for us in the Word of God. And every time you study a portion of the Word of God, you ought to ask yourself, why is this here? What is the, what is the main point of this passage of Scripture? I believe this story is here in this location in the Scripture to show Peter in the early church that the gospel was for everyone. Everyone. I believe it's also here to show Peter in the early church that they were being slow to get the gospel to everyone. Now, the Lord just went back to heaven not long before this story takes place, just, just a short time, and the early church was doing a wonderful job reaching the Jews. And they had been commissioned by the Lord, as we learned in Sunday school, five different times to reach the whole world with the gospel, to reach every people <coughs> with the gospel. But up to this point, with the exception of Philip reaching the Ethiopian eunuch and the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 when the persecution started, with the exception of Acts chapter 8, no intentional effort has been made to go to the Gentile nations. And this story is here to propel Peter and the church out of their comfort zone and to the nations of the world with the gospel. It's the same reason, those are the same reasons why we have missions a month, mission weeks. Because we need to be reminded that the gospel is for the whole world. And we need to be aware of the world that's still waiting to hear it. And we need to be reminded that we're being slow to get it there. That we have not progressed to the point of complete obedience to the Great Commission. So God's mission is to be carried out through missions in this church and every church like it. So missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill His desire to get the gospel to those who've responded to some form of witness but are waiting to hear the rest of the story. Are you still with me this morning? I want to give you three reasons we must reach the unreached, all from these first six verses of Acts chapter 10. Now you'll notice my main point is missing, and it's missing on purpose, and I'll get to it in a couple of minutes. But I want you to note a couple of things in verses 1 and 2 about this man Cornelius. First, I want you to see that this man was, let me use the term, if I may, a good man. I don't know if he was good morally. I don't know if he was a wholesome individual. I think probably bearing out in the rest of the passage, 
we do see some noble characteristics in his heart. But could I say it this way? He was a responsible man, a man who could be trusted. He was a Roman officer. The Roman army was perhaps to this day is still considered the most well-oiled military machine of, of all history. And, and Cornelius was an officer in this army. He had risen in rank to a position where he had at least 100 men under his command. So he obviously had the trust of his superior officers. They could assign him a territory to cover, or they could assign him a mission to carry out. And he had some integrity about obeying orders, following instructions, overseeing people, supervising a, a, a task or a mission. And so there's some things about this man that, that you would characterize as being, well, a good, a good man, a fine officer, a fine soldier. Secondly, I want you to see that Cornelius was a religious man. Notice it says here in verse 2, a devout man. The word devout in that verse right there is translated two different ways, or from, I'm sorry, from two different Greek words in our New Testament. And sometimes when you see the word devout, it simply means an inner feeling of religious devotion. Now, I've met a lot of people who claim to be followers of Christ. I've met a lot of people who claim to be uh, Christians. For example, you, ask, you, you go door knocking and you run across somebody and you say, uh, do you attend church anywhere? No, no, you ask the question, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Where do you attend church? Oh, I don't go to church. That's someone you could put in this category. Uh, an inner feeling of religious sincerity, but that's, that's all there is to it. There's no action behind it. There's no evidence of that heart. The word in, in Acts 10 verse 2 is not that word. That's just a, an inner feeling of devotion. But this word is a religious sincerity that expresses itself in outward activity. So in this category, one who has this inner devotion to God that is manifested in the life. In this category, you would find a devout Catholic that goes to Mass every week and, and uh, participates in the sacraments and prays the rosary. That's a devout Catholic. You would find a devout Buddhist, and that's one who spins the prayer wheels and burns incense and offers things at the altar and prostrates themselves uh, in, in, in a recitation of their Buddhist mantras. In this category, you would find a devout Muslim who prays five times a day and gives alms and recites the Shahada. Cornelius was a devout man. Now, please note something very important about this passage of Scripture. This is the Scripture inspired by God giving a testimony about Cornelius. So God said about this man, he's devout. He has this religious sincerity that is very evident in his life. So, verse 2, what is the evidence of his devoutness? In verse 2, notice please, it says, first of all, he feared God. Now, this is God's testimony, so here's a God-fearing man. You know, years ago, I, I remember preaching that you, if, if, you don't, if you're not saved, you don't, you don't fear God, because if you feared God, you would come to Him. Uh, but God is speaking of this man Cornelius, and, and He calls him a God-fearing man. The second thing you see in verse 2 is that he gave much alms. He was a generous giver. It doesn't just say he gave, it says he gave much. He was a very generous-hearted person. When he saw a need, he reached in his own pocket and, and helped to meet that need. Uh, notice it also says that he prayed always. 
He's a God-fearing man who is very generous, and he prays always, not just once in a while when he has a problem, but he prays all the time. Now, I left out part of the verse on purpose, but I want you to go back to it. One that feared God, notice the next four words, with all his house. So not only is this a God-fearing man, a giving man, and a praying man, but he is so sincere in what he's doing that he's affecting those around him. His house, who would that be? Well, that would be his wife. That would be his children. That could possibly be the servants in his household. It could also extend beyond that to his work relationships and his, his, uh, the soldiers under his command. So if I were to say about any believer in the room this morning, here is a, a, a God-fearing man or woman who is a generous giver, who prays all the time, and who influences other people to follow them in their faith, that'd be a great testimony for any one of, any one of us, wouldn't it? But we have a problem because we need to continue in the story and we learn this. We learn that he was a lost man. So why do we need to reach these people? Number one, because of their lostness. Their lostness. Now I want to talk to you about that for just a minute right here, but I want you to know, know this, and I, I know you're uh, biblically educated people Without the knowledge of Jesus Christ, people are lost. Can you say amen right there? I wish that weren't true. I wish it were true that everybody who has a sincere heart like this and who is kind to other people and a generous giver and, and one who prays to the gods or the God, whoever he might be, I wish I could say that people have, who have that kind of sincerity about them are, are going to be all right. They're, the, they're going to make it to heaven somehow. They're on their way somehow. They're going to make it to heaven. A famous evangelist was once interviewed by Newsweek magazine, and he said, I refuse to render any absolute verdicts about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. As long as a man is sincere, here's what he said, even if he never hears the name of Jesus Christ, someday, somehow he's going to be okay. You know, the Bible says in John 3, 18, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. What's the rest of the verse say? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the difference here, isn't he? How about John 3, 36? He that believeth on the Son hath life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. How about John 14, 1? Uh, ye believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 6, in, uh, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can go through Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 and following, and you'll find that by one man we were plunged into sin and disobedience. One man named Adam put us in this sinful state of being, and there's only one man who can deliver us from this condemnation, and that man is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, people are lost. Let me, help, let me help you with what was going on in Cornelius' heart right here. Fearing God is simply an acknowledgement of the glory of God. There are a lot of lost people who fear God because they know, well, yeah, I know there's a God. I know He made this world. And there's, a, there's an awe in their heart for Him. That's a simple acknowledgement of His glory, an acknowledgement of His authority and His sovereignty over this universe. Giving is simply an acknowledgement of accountability to that God. If there is a God and He's sovereign and He controls all things, then surely I'm accountable to Him. I probably should be good to my neighbor. If He has a need, maybe I should help. Praying 
is simply an acknowledging of the power of the one that you believe is sovereign and the creator over this world. But the main issue comes down to this simple fact. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you've never met Jesus Christ, you're lost and on your way to hell. Sincerity is not a substitute for knowing Jesus. Spirituality is no substitute for faith in Jesus Christ. Good works are not a substitute for a personal relationship, having personally accepted the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now the world we live in will tell you, Christianity offers one way to God, but there are a lot of ways. I mean, you're taking one road to heaven, I'm taking another road to heaven, but all religions lead to God. You have to admit that. We're all, we're all headed to the same place. We're just taking different routes or different roads. I think your pastor preached from Luke 24 uh, sometime earlier this year talking about the major theme of the Bible. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 24, two times the Bible tells us that Jesus himself, beginning at Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, he taught the disciples the things in the Scripture concerning himself. Listen to me. The whole of Scripture is the story of Jesus Christ making a way for sinful man to get back to God. That's what the whole of this book is about. It is symbolized It is in the Old Testament. It is typified in the Old Testament. It is prophesied in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in the New Testament and clearly declared in the epistles. Jesus is the way to heaven. He's not a way to God. He's the only way to God. And people who die without Jesus Christ spend eternity in hell. And that evangelist who said, I refuse to render any absolute verdicts, this book has the verdict right here. Amen? Again, I tell you, I wish that weren't true. And I know what I've said so far is very elementary anybody in this room who's saved. But here's what I want to get to with this main point. I believe that to the degree we grasp their lostness will be the degree to which we're willing to do what is necessary to penetrate their lostness. If we do not understand their lostness and the fact that they are headed to an eternal hell with no hope of ever being relieved of such punishment and and eternal torment, we will not feel compelled to take them the gospel. I remember the fear that I had of hell when I was six years old. I went to Springdale Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama, and an evangelist was preaching there that week. My dad was a pastor, so we went to this church on a weeknight for a revival meeting. <clears throat> and in, in North Alabama, the preacher only has two gears. He has uh, first gear and overdrive. And by the time he gets to the end of the text, he's in overdrive, and he's screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs, and he doesn't come out of overdrive until it's time to pray the closing prayer. But he was red in the face, and he preached a sermon on hell. And I want to tell you that day, I heard what he had to say and realized, I I really believe this, I realized for the first time in my young life as a six-year-old boy that I was a sinner on my way to hell. I had been taught this before in Sunday school. My dad's a pastor. I'd heard him preach it. But I think standing in the back of that auditorium on the back row right back there was the first time in my life I realized I'm a sinner on my way to hell. And it became very personal. When the invitation was given, I didn't go forward. But I left as soon as they prayed the dismissal prayer. I went out the back doors, lickety split, and went down down into the parking lot to my dad's 1965 Volkswagen. 
and I knelt in the back floorboard of that Volkswagen with my feet under the driver's seat and my head on the back seat, and I prayed and asked Jesus to save my soul right there. I got saved in the back seat of a Volkswagen. You top that story. <laughs> but you know what I felt in that service? I felt the fear of hell. I felt lostness, and I knew I needed to be saved. A few years later, uh, when I was in college, it was after my freshman year of college, for a period of time I had been tormented with doubt. And I think everybody who gets saved kind of goes through that at some point in their life. Do, am I really saved? Did I really pray the prayer I should have prayed? Did I understand, understood? Did I understand what I was, uh, I was saying and what I was praying? And you go through all these what ifs, right? Don't nod your head, but you've probably been there at some point in your life. And I was tormented with those doubts. And I, again, I was fearful of hell. Well, at my, after my freshman year of college, I came home and, and that summer I was working a job, but I went one evening, I walked down the street from our house just three or four blocks to a city park and there was a bench out there and I took a notebook with me and a pen and I sat down on that bench and I began to write a letter to God. And in my letter, I expressed to God every way I knew how to word it. I expressed every way I knew how to word it, that I was putting my trust and faith in Him you are my Savior. You're the only way to heaven. I acknowledge all of these truths. I trust the Word of God. I express everything I could possibly express about absolute and total trust in Jesus and faith in Him. I signed my name to it, and at the bottom of it I wrote, P.S. I don't recommend you talk to God this way. But at the bottom of it I wrote, P.S. If I die and go to hell now, it'll be your fault. <laughs> I ripped it out of the notebook. I, I wadded it up and I threw it in a trash can. I wish I had kept it now. But I threw it in the trash can, symbolic of the fact that I will never again doubt my salvation like this because I trust Jesus. But what took me to that park bench and what took me to that Volkswagen bug in, in, uh, in that 1965 Volkswagen was the fear of dying and going to hell. And my preacher friend has said this for years. I've heard him say it a lot of times. The problem with most Christians is it's been too long since we were lost. We don't remember what it's like to know, uh, to not know that if you lay your head on your pillow at night and don't wake up, that you won't go to hell. How long has it been since you got saved? How long have you had this assurance of heaven? And how long have you rejoiced in it? And how many times have we put ourselves in the place of those who are lost and without Christ? Some of us act as if lostness doesn't exist. We're going about our normal lives and everything's fine with us and we've got our responsibilities and our duties and we've got our pleasures and our vacations and our enjoyment and we complain when the least little thing gets out of place. How long has it been since we stopped and meditated on people who are on their way to hell and regardless of how good their life might be on this earth and how much pleasure they may be having on this earth, they're going to die and burn in hell forever and ever and we act like lostness doesn't exist. But we need to make it very clear in our own hearts, there is no way to God but through Jesus Christ. And if we believe that, we have no alternative but to do whatever we need to do to get them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The level of our urgency is determined by our conviction of the truth of Scripture. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says that we are ambassadors we are ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But there's a powerful uh, verse in 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to ask you to turn there. 
Paul says, I don't think I can find the verse right now. I'll come back to that later. Sorry about that. <clears throat> but the level of our urgency is determined by our belief in the truth of the Scripture. Uh, one of the motivations, I'll tell you what it is, but one of the motivations of an ambassador is his own conviction of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus died for all and that all men are sinners and all men are on their way to hell. So are you with me this morning? The first reason we ought to reach them is because of their lostness. Now I want to tell you, that's a powerful, powerful reason. And it doesn't take long for us to meditate on that fact for God to stir our hearts. But I have, I, have to, I have to move to point number two and tell you something else. That's not the best reason to reach them. It's a powerful one, but there's another better reason. I want to talk about his desire. Notice what happens in verses 3 and 4. Cornelius saw a vision, and in verse 3 it says, and It was an angel of God <clears throat> coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And verse 4, please notice, When he looked on him, he was afraid and said, Look at the next four words. What is it, Lord? Lord. You know, Cornelius immediately recognized that this was the Lord. So there are two points under this. Number one, we have the seeking sinner. We have the seeking sinner with Cornelius as we talked about him being a devout man, God-fearing man, giving man, praying man. We have this one who is seeking after God. Let me tell you about a seeking sinner. It always starts with God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. In our flesh, in our carnality, in our weakness, we're not going to seek after God. Salvation always starts with God. And where does it start? It starts in Romans 1 verses 19 and 20, where the Bible says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. There are two witnesses of God. Number one is the conscience of a man. Everybody knows in his own conscience there is a God. Isn't that true? The only people who deny the existence of God are people who are willing to believe their own lie because there is a God and they know there's a God. And they've lied to themselves so many times they believe it. But there is an inner voice inside every one of us that believes there is a God. And the second witness is creation. We see this world and we know there is a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, I love the language of this verse, day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. You know what that means? It means the rising of the sun and the, and the coming out of the moon and the stars talks to you and tells you there is a God. And the next verse says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. We're translating the Bible. We're dealing with languages, right? Trying to get the Word of God into the language, the heart language of unreached people groups. But there is, a, there is a voice that speaks to them in their language, and that is a conscious awareness of God and a creation that tells them every single day, there is a God and you need to know Him. So in their heart, they have this basic desire. Here's what I'm trying to say. God made it so that every person knows He exists and knows that he can be known. And so the most basic desire of the human heart is, I would like to know where I came from and who my creator is. I would like to be absolved of the sin and the guilt that I feel. And I would like to have a place someday of eternal rest and paradise from this troubled and sorrowful world. Everybody has those basic desires, right? So here's what happens. And here's what's happening in Cornelius. 
Listen carefully. Every man on earth, you ever, heard, you ever heard somebody say this? Does God send people to hell? What about people who've never heard? Is it really fair that they're going to die and go to hell? I want you to hear what I'm about to say. God made it so that every man on earth has the same foundation from which to respond to God. Conscience and creation. When a man responds toward God, he becomes a seeking sinner. And God will make sure that man gets more light. When a man responds away from God, he becomes more and more blind and more and more deaf to the truth of the gospel. When a man says, I know there's a God, and I see there's a God, and I sure would like to know him. God's going to make sure that man gets more light. And when a man says, I know there's a God, and he bows before a statue and prays as if the statue is God, or it symbolizes some ethereal being somewhere, that man's heart gets darker. I won't ask you to turn there, but you're familiar with the passage in Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, where the Bible says the idols that men make, it actually says, the idols are the work of men's hands, crafted by men, designed by men, uh, uh, built by men. And here's, what it, here's what, how it describes those idols. It says they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Uh, they, have, um, um, they, they have, I already said it, eyes, ears, and mouth. But there's, there's a powerful verse in, in that passage of Scripture in verse 18 that really hit me hard one day. Yeah, I know it's a block of stone, it can't see, or a block of wood, it can't hear, it can't talk. But verse 18 in that passage, you know what it says? These idols that are the work of men's hands, listen, it says, they that make them are like unto them. The people who make idols and pray to idols are just as blind as the block of wood they just carved, or the stone they just, they just carved out. They're blind and they're deaf to truth and they can't speak truth. They have, they have cut themselves off. Their hearts grow darker and the spiritual darkness gets more and more intense. So the answer to the question, does God send people to hell? No, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Men turn away from God and the result of turning away from God is eternal hell. Someone said it this way, how can God send innocent people to hell? You know what the answer to that question is? There are no innocent people. Every man is guilty before God. And what he does to respond to conscience and creation determines what God does with him. But here's what I want you to see in this chapter. I said a moment ago, when a man responds to his conscience and, his create, and the creation of this world, when he responds to that by saying, I want to know who God is, and he turns in his own heart toward God, God responds to that. And that's what's been happening in Cornelius' heart. He is disillusioned with the idols that he has been worshiping all of his life and that he was raised to worship and his family worshiped. He's disillusioned with all that. And he says to himself somewhere in that process, that God's never answered one of my prayers. I don't feel his presence. I don't think he's real. I want to know the true God. And as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 describes it, he began the process of turning to God from idols. That's what's happening in Cornelius' heart. And what I want you to see from chapter 10 right here, verses 3 and 4, is the, the extent to which the Lord went to get more good news to Cornelius. There was no preacher coming. There was no apostle on his way to the Gentiles. 
So the Lord appeared to Cornelius in a vision. I was driving down the road one day a few years ago listening to the scripture. <clears throat> and I was listening to Isaiah chapter 53. And the Bible says in that wonderful chapter that, that uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You, you're, you're familiar with that great chapter in Isaiah 53. It got down to verse 10, and a phrase struck me, and I backed it up and played it again, and backed it up and played it again. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We're talking about here not only the seeking sinner, but we're talking about the seeking Savior. Coming down to Cornelius to give him some good news. The seeking Savior desired to reach him. And, and Isaiah 53.10 says it pleased God, the Father, it's what it's talking about there, to bruise his own son. You know one of the most horrible scenes that has ever taken place on the face of this earth is the crucifixion of Jesus. He was beaten and bloodied and bruised. His hair was pulled out. His beard was plucked out. He was platted with the crown of thorns. He was smitten with a cat of nine tails. He was stripped naked. And it was an awful, awful scene. And, and the one being crucified that day was, listen to me, God in flesh. And Isaiah 53.10 says, God found pleasure in the sacrificial death of his own son. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I asked myself, what pleasure did this bring to God? And what joy was Jesus looking forward to? And there's only one answer to the questions. They were both looking forward to the opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. He wanted you so bad that he was willing to put his son through Calvary. And Jesus wanted to glorify and please the Father so much that he was willing to lay down his life so you could get to the Father through his own sacrificial death. If that doesn't prove to us the, the desire of God for these unreached people to be saved, I don't know what can. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll talk about this more tonight. Sometimes I have a great burden for lost people and I think about them dying and going to hell and I can weep over that. And sometimes I don't care as much about that. But when I think about the desire of the Lord and the passion that He has for them to hear the good news of His Son, that motivates me in a greater way. How about you? Third, I want you to see, we're going to bring this to a close. I want you to see our responsibility. Why must we reach the unreached? Number one, because of their lostness. Number two, because of his desire. And number three, I want you to see from verses five and six, our responsibility. And this ought to sober us up. <clears throat> Listen carefully to this. Do you believe Jesus could have told Cornelius how to be saved? Of course he could. I think he could have just given a very visual illustration and said, right here, see the wounds in my hands? See the wound in my side? I shed my blood on the cross for you just a few days ago, Cornelius. And I know you're searching for me. I know you want to know me. You're praying all the time. And you know what Jesus said to him at the end of verse 4? He said, he said my father sees your devotion. What did it say? Let me read exactly what it says at the end of verse 4. He said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God sees your heart. And Jesus could have built upon that thought and said, 
My Father knows you want to be saved, and I'm here to help you get saved. Just place your trust in me. Now, if that had happened, in testimony time later, Cornelius could have said, well, I was led to the Lord by the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? be a powerful testimony, wouldn't it? But that's not what the Lord said. See, the first thing he told him was, God sees your devotion, and I want you to know from that, God sees the hearts of this whole world of unreached people. And don't you think he sees a few hearts out there that want to know, know who God is? Amen right there? Amen. The second thing Jesus told him here was, verses 5 and 6, go get Simon Peter. Now, if that's not proof of our responsibility, I don't know where it's better illustrated in the Scripture. Jesus could have told him, but he didn't. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Jesus could have ordained a thousand different ways for men to be saved. He could have written it in the sky. He could have spoken to us in dreams and visions, but he chose men. He chose men. God sees them. Listen carefully. And God knows where you are with the message that can help them. And God's desire is to put the two of you together. That's what happens in this story. We have a seeking sinner. We have a seeking savior. And we have a laborer with the gospel who is brought into the picture and Cornelius and his household get saved. The startling news for us today is that God chose men to tell the good news of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.18 on the screen says He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the responsibility. And verse 19, He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the message. And here Paul is saying, almost as if Paul is saying, God has told you what to do and told you what to say. Just go accomplish the mission. Go participate in this mission. I have to tell you some things about the Apostle Peter here. If I were God, I don't think I would have chosen this method because we're weak and, and at best we're unfaithful, aren't we? If I were God, I probably wouldn't have chosen Peter because Peter was rash. He was, he was ill-tempered at times. He was impetuous, and, and I like to say about Peter, he always put his mouth in motion before his brain was in gear, right? That's what pastor was referring to earlier. Uh, get thee behind me, Satan. You've allowed yourself to become the voice of Satan. So I'm not sure if I would have chosen men in this method because it's, it's an unreliable method, isn't it? 7,407 people groups still unreached. And I'm not sure I would have chosen Peter because... I just can't depend on him. You know, the Lord always had to talk to Peter in sets of three, right? Do you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? <laughs> Here's how Paul said it, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. He said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, the gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He said in Acts 20, 24, he spoke of the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So here's what we have. We have a seeking sinner, and we have a, a laborer of the, of, the, of the gospel over here, and God's putting these two together, and a beautiful story of them coming together and Cornelius and his whole house getting saved. Now, I want to prove this to you. That's not the first time this happened. And it's not the only time it happened just like this. Can I illustrate it for you very quickly? In Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip 
was directed to leave his revival meeting in Samaria where a lot of people were getting saved and go out to the desert. When he got to the desert, he met the Ethiopian eunuch which had come to Jerusalem for to what? Somebody say it. Worship. Here's a seeking sinner and here's a preacher of the gospel. Philip, go to the desert. God put those two together. Do you see that? In Acts chapter 16, there's a certain woman a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, her name is Lydia, which worshipped God. She's seeking God. And Paul is in Asia Minor wanting to go somewhere and plant another church and the Spirit of God suffered him not. But in a vision he saw a man from Macedonia say, come over here and help us. And he got on a ship and traveled five hours across the Aegean Sea just to go find Lydia who had been worshipping God but she needed the rest of the story. In Acts chapter 17, Paul encounters at Athens a, a, a hill where they have hundreds of gods uh, and statues uh, positioned on this hill. And in the middle of that, right in somewhere, somewhere in the middle of that, they had one that said, to the unknown God. And Paul said, whom therefore ye ignorantly what? Worship him declare I unto you. You know why they had that God? They had, the, they had these, all these different statues, but they put that one there because in their hearts they knew there's a God we don't know. And they were bowing toward him in their seeking hearts and God directed Paul to teach them who that God was. This is one of my favorites. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in the city of Corinth and this is a wicked, most wicked city in the world perhaps at that time in history. <clears throat> a thousand prostitutes would come down from the temple every night to ply their trade in the city. And Paul wanted to leave because nobody was listening. And he was by himself, he was discouraged. He talks about this in one of his other epistles. And God appeared to Paul in a vision in Corinth. And here's what he said. You stay right here and you keep preaching. And these are such amazing words. For I have much people in this city. And I don't know what he said in response to that. But I'm pretty sure he said, you do? Where are they? I can't find any of them. I don't see any of them. I don't see any prospect of any of them. But God could see their hearts. Amen. You say, well, preacher, that's just New Testament stuff. That doesn't really totally prove your point. How about Jesus and the woman at the well? Uh, the woman at the well, when Jesus said, give me water, she said, uh, you worship over there and we worship over here. You know what she was doing? She was looking for God, wasn't she? She was seeking the truth. Um, the spies who went to Jericho in the Old Testament, and they met up accidentally with a woman named Rahab. You know what she said? We've heard about your God. Is there any way me and my family can be saved? That was no accident. God led those spies to that house on purpose, didn't he? Are you still with me this morning? So missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill his desire, to get the gospel to those who responded to some form of witness and they're waiting to hear the rest of the story. Do you believe that? Would you say amen? All right, here's my question for you. Who might God be directing you toward? Who is around where you live that that is true of? If God sees them and knows their hearts, and God knows you have the message, who is God pointing you toward? We make missions so complicated, but it's so simple. God is at work and he not only sees and knows them, but he sees and knows you. And he is a director 
trying to put his people together with those who will respond to the gospel. I mentioned a moment ago, the Lord always had to talk to Peter in sets of three. John 21, he asked him three times, do you love me? And in the rest of this story right here, if you were to read on, you'll find he let down a sheet three times for Peter, right? Peter said, not so, Lord. She came down again, not so, Lord. In that sheet where all men are four-footed beasts and creeping things, and the voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, oh, no, no, I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Three times Peter had to drop that sheet before Peter even began to get the message. And I wonder how many times, sometimes, God will have to tell the church. See, what Peter finally learned here was this is not a sheet full of animals and I'm supposed to fill up my belly. He learned this is representative of the unreached world that I view as unclean and unreachable, but God wants them reached. Peter finally learned that. Do you believe they're lost this morning? Do you believe they're lost? Do you feel his passion to reach them? Can you sense that in your heart this morning? You see that illustrated in this story? And have you accepted your responsibility? Why must we reach down reach? Because of their lostness. Because of his desire and passion to reach them. And because it's my responsibility to be the voice of God and carry this message to the ends of the earth. Don't close your Bible, please. I want you to look at the journey that Peter had to go on before he was convinced that he ought to follow these men from Cornelius and go to his house. Notice, please, in chapter 10, verse 17, I think it is. Yes. <clears throat> After the sheet was let down three times, verse 17 says, Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were, from, were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. When you are faced squarely, listen to me now, when you're faced squarely with your responsibility in the mission of God, you're going to go through a crisis of doubt. Me? He wants me? Wait, but, but I'm not a preacher. I, I'm, not, I'm not a called missionary. I'm not going to a foreign country. But, but you, you're talking to me? Yes, God's talking to you. You're going to face this crisis of doubt, but you need to face this responsibility squarely and realize that whether God sends you to a foreign country or to a neighbor across the street, you are to be on mission with God, obeying the direction of His voice, opening your mouth and speaking to those that He puts in your path so they can come to know Jesus Christ. God may cross your path this week with somebody who just got a terminal diagnosis of cancer and has three months to live. And God may put them in your path because He knows you know Him and you know His gospel message. And if you fail to open your mouth, that person could potentially die and go to hell. Notice the next steps in this. Peter doubted, is it really me you want? Notice verse 34, please. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, of a truth, I am convinced that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. What does that mean? Peter said, I, I've learned my lesson. God wants these people. And God's working in the hearts and lives of these people. And he's directing me to talk to them. So whether it's a neighbor across the street or a coworker. In, in another part of the building where you work or the office where you work, 
Will you accept your responsibility? Will you obey the voice and the leadership of the Lord? Will you stop doubting that God wants to use you? And will you become convinced that God wants to reach them? I don't know who said this, but a writer said, when all is said and done, the greatest mystery is not the character or desire of God, nor is it the perilous destiny of the lost. But the greatest mystery is that those who are charged with the preaching of the only gospel that can save a man's soul have spent 2,000 years doing other things, leaving half the world without Christ. A preacher, if God let a sheet down three times in a vision for me, then I would go. Can I tell you, you don't need a sheet let down three times. You have his commission five times. Would you bow your heads with me, please? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, <clears throat> you may be here this morning and you are a Cornelius. Maybe you're a good person. Maybe you're a religious person. You have religious thoughts and sincerity about you, but you've never trusted Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you this morning to come to the front in just a moment when we begin, uh, when, when our pianist begins to play, and let somebody take a Bible and show you how to be saved. You might be a believer here today that God is calling and leading. Whether that's at home or abroad, is there someone waiting on you to share the good news of Jesus? And will you obediently share Him and help bring that person to Christ? Father, we thank You for the power of this story, a powerful and beautiful illustration of the way You want to work to bring people to Yourself. And it's so obvious in this story that You chose us to be Your voice, and may we yield ourselves and surrender ourselves to be that voice. Not, a, not just a burden for people around the world, but an awareness of people around us right here where we live. Who do you want me to speak to this week? May we be willing and available. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for joining us for this episode, and please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for checking out this episode. I look forward to having you join us again right here on the Grace Baptist Church podcast.